This is the Gordon Damer Show on 98.7 ESPN. Good afternoon, everyone. Ian O'Connor, columnist of the New York Post, in for Gordon Damer here on 98.7 ESPN for the next three hours up until Clippers Suns Game 1 right here on 98.7. And obviously we've got a lot to talk about after the Game 7 really crushing defeat the Nets suffered last night. I was there at the Barclays Center covering it for the Post. We'll have Tim Bontemps of ESPN coming up at uh, 12.30. We'll have Bob Harrig and uh, Mark Cannizzaro from the U.S. Open coming up as well. And when we talk about Father's Day and the U.S. Open, I always remember the line from Payne Stewart 22 years ago today at Pinehurst after he beat Phil Mickelson, whose wife was expecting their first child. Actually, I believe that child was born the following day, and he had a beeper ready to leave, Phil did, if that beeper went off, and it didn't. But he loses to Payne Stewart. Stewart grabs him by the cheeks, pulls him in tight, and says, there's nothing like being a father. And four months later, Payne Stewart was dead, unfortunately, tragically, in that plane crash. And But truer words have never been spoken than the words that Payne Stewart shared with Phil Mickelson that day 22 years ago. And I like to repeat that every year as a father. A lot of fathers out there. It's a wonderful day. It really is. Not a wonderful day if you're a Brooklyn Nets fan. And so being there last night, the thing that struck me was the atmosphere was great. I thought that I've been in a lot of big games in the Garden over the years. And that crowd at the end was as loud as it gets, particularly after the Durant shot drops at the end of regulation. And that's one of the greatest shots I've ever seen. I asked Durant afterward if it was maybe the biggest shot of his career. I understand he's a two-time finals MVP, but one second left, a must-have shot in a game seven where your season is on the brink. It's over if it misses. It's a 24-foot fadeaway turnaround. You're falling towards the sidelines, and it goes in. The, the noise in that building was really unbelievable in the aftermath of that shot. And you're thinking – well, now the Nets are going to find a way clearly to win in, in overtime. The Bucks are going to go away after that kind of a knockout punch. And it didn't happen. And w w the play, the moment to me that stands out when you look at this crushing loss was the Joe Harris three, the wide open three he had with about 57 seconds to go. Score tied, balls kicked back out to him. That's his job. And he didn't do his job, unfortunately. He was very... He was apologetic afterwards, and it was just a really brutal series for him. And the Nets with Kyrie Irving out after the injury in Game 4 with Harden playing basically on one leg, they needed Joe Harris to make some shots to advance in the series, and he didn't. So the Bucks deserved it. You give them all the credit in the world for grinding out a Game 7 win on the road, which is one of the hardest things to do in sports. And they hung in there, and, and they, they sort of worked the problem in the game, and they did have problems. Drew Holiday, he was terrible for most of that game, but he made a couple of shots when he had to. And then the defense he played on Durant at the end of overtime, that was, that was great defense for a smaller player, and I, I know he's a good defender to begin with, but for him to hang in there, contest that shot, understandably Durant was really fatigued having played the entire 53 minutes of the game, which is unbelievable after he gave you 48 in game five in that masterpiece. But I thought that uh, holiday on that contest was without fouling. That was a great job. And so it's an air ball and the air comes out of the nets championship 
dreams. And Steve Nash talked about what he told his team after that Game 7 defeat. I just told them how proud I am of them. Um, just an unbelievable effort. Gave us everything they had, you know. Uh, so much adversity this year, first year together. So many changes to the roster and so many injuries, COVID protocols. Um, now they couldn't have given us anything more. They couldn't have given us, you know, to take that team, you know, without Kai and James on one leg out there, doing anything he can to help his teammates. Well, listen, it was uh, all on Durant at the end there. Uh, I thought the Nets would win it all as long as they had two of the three players available. They had one and a half. They, they couldn't win a championship with one and a half of the big three because Harden was so limited, though he, he did make some plays last night. And that bank shot three that he made, you felt like after that, too, well, the Nets are going to win this game. I, I think what we discovered last night at the Barclays Center is that it is very hard to win a closeout playoff game when your bench gives you no points, zero. And if and Steve Nash took some criticism last night for not calling a timeout at the end of overtime to set up that final play, which I didn't have a big problem with because he got the ball in the hands of Durant. Basically, the final play in overtime was going to be the final play in regulation. Just get the ball to the best player in the world right now and, and let him make a play. And so Durant had the ball. He had a chance to make another play, and he was just too exhausted to make it. So would a timeout have helped there, maybe given him a – a breather, so he had his legs underneath him a little bit more. I think it's a it's it's really a second guess because you just want your best player to have a chance to tie or win the game there, and without calling a timeout, that did indeed happen. So without letting the defense set up, Durant gets the shot, and it falls short. And for him, it's rare when a superstar athlete can lose a Game 7 at home or anywhere and have his legacy still grow. And I thought in this series and in that game last night, that is exactly what happened. Because you can't ask more of a human being than was asked of Kevin Durant last night and in this series. And he delivered in a big way. He talked about what he felt after losing Game 7 at home. Yeah, we want to win. We want to win every game we play. We want to win a championship every year, just like every team. So the last game of the season, you lose. Um, but the beauty of uh, our profession is uh, we get up and we get up and keep going. You know, we uh, everybody on this team is uh, works extremely hard. They care about the game, uh, so you know we get ready for for next year. Well, it's uh, next year. The Nets are going to be the favorite to win the whole thing. If you think Steve Nash is uh, to blame for them not winning the whole thing this year, which I don't really agree with, give us a call one eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six one eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six. Or you just want to talk about strategy there, what happened to this team at the end of this series, and really what a game changer it was when Kyrie Irving landed on Giannis's foot, turned that ankle. Any of you played basketball at any level, recreational, high school, college whatever it may be, you know that feeling. I think I did that a dozen times in my life, and it's hard to even watch when it happens to somebody else. It really is because it's the worst feeling in the world on a basketball court when you roll that ankle, stepping on somebody's foot, or just rolling it on your own. It's it just – and that was a bad one. You saw the way his ankle 
bent really in that situation. And the fact that he couldn't come back in the series really was not surprising at all. He plays, the Nets are in the conference finals. Frankly, I, I'm not trying to take anything away from the Bucks. I give them a lot of credit for finding a way to win a game seven on the road. Giannis delivered late, and despite the fact that he was clearly rattled by the crowd on the free throw line, he did make, what was it, 8 of 14 for him? You can live with that, and you don't want 5 of 14 from the line. And so he actually started making some, and seemed like he got inspired a little bit after being rattled on the free throw line. And Middleton, 9 of 26, but again, he made some big shots. Drew Holiday, 5 for 23, but he made a couple of shots in that big stop at the end on Durant. Where do they go from here? You almost don't want to, if you're a Brooklyn Nets fan, you don't want to talk about next year. It just hurts too much after uh, what happened last night. But all three of the big three are up for extensions this offseason. They don't have to sign those extensions. They can punt on those until next year. But Joe Sy, the owner, is, what is he worth? $11, $12 billion. So he can afford it. It's going to be a staggering financial commitment if they do extend these guys out on top of what's left on their existing deals. So, but the big three is going to be together for another, you figure, three years or so. And they'll be the favorites to win it all next year. And so they just have to stay healthy. And frankly, not all three. They just need two of them healthy. They would have won it, I really truly believe that, if two stayed healthy. Instead, it was one and a half, and that was not enough. The conference finals, of course, you've got the Game 7 Sixers-Hawks tonight. That's on TNT. I would be very surprised if the Hawks won that game. But the Hawks have surprised me the entire postseason. I thought the Knicks would take them out in the first round. They're better than I realized. And Nate McMillan has done a terrific job with that team since taking over for the last, what is it, about uh, three months or so. And I, I expect the Sixers will, will win that game. And Sixers-Bucks will be a hell of a conference final. Can Ben Simmons actually convince himself to shoot the ball and, and with confidence and conviction? And here's a guy who's making what he signed for. I think it was $177 million over five years. And at times, a lot of times, he's afraid to shoot the ball. That's a problem. That is a real problem. But I think that being at home with Embiid looking healthy enough, the Sixers will win that game, win that series. A great job by Nate McMillan. But the Hawks keep surprising you. So I guess we shouldn't be shocked if they come out of that game and are seeing the Bucks in the Eastern Conference Final. On the other side, we have Clippers Suns Game 1 right here on 98.7 ESPN coming up at 3 o'clock. I think the we don't know about Kawhi Leonard when he's going to return to the series. If he's going to return to the series, he's out for Game 1. Chris Paul, of course, in the COVID protocol system, he's out. We don't know when he's going to be back. So, But I, I would uh, favor the Suns in that series. Talk about a guy who's done a great job in Monty Williams and... So a, a good guy, too, one of the good guys in the profession. So you're happy for him. You, you could be looking at a Suns-Sixers NBA final. So new blood. And uh, unfortunately, if you're a Nets fan, it's not going to be the new blood from Brooklyn, at least as a unit new. Obviously, those guys, you have KD as a two-time champ. Kyrie Irving won one with LeBron. James Harden, been in the league for a while now, hasn't gotten a chance to to win a championship yet. He's had chances, just hasn't fulfilled them and so another opportunity goes by the boards for him for the Brooklyn Nets as a whole
Welcome back. Ian O'Connor in for Gordon Damer here on 98.7 ESPN. Happy Father's Day to all. We're talking Nets crushing loss in Game 7 last night at Barclays Center. The Bucks move on to the conference final to play the winner of tonight's Game 7 between the Sixers and Hawks. We have Clippers-Suns Game 1 out west at 3 o'clock right here on 98.7 ESPN. We're going to the phone lines. It's 1-800-919-3776. Sam, you have a thought on James Harden. Go ahead, Sam. Hey, Ian. Uh, James Harden's play at the end of that game was so erratic, throwing the ball around, lobbing it, trying to force it in. I'm trying to understand uh, if there was a game plan or even if KD could have taken the ball into his own hands pretty much and just drove him, driven to the rim to get a foul because at that point, Harden wasn't going to make a shot. And uh, the only other guys like Brown were driving to the rim, at least getting the rebound. So I'm just trying to understand James Harden's uh, mental capabilities at the end of the game there. I mean, it seems like he wasn't capable injuries-wise, but also just erratic play. I just well, I just don't agree with his play. I, I think you have to cut him some slack. I, I think a guy, if you've ever had a hamstring injury, those are so hard to come back from. It takes forever for hamstrings to heal on any level of sport. It really, I had it a couple of times and just playing at a much lower level than James Harden ever played at. And, and so it, it is a very difficult thing to do. And I think just him being out there 53 minutes and the way he gutted it out in this series, I understand he missed 12 of 17 shots last night. He did, did make all 10 of his free throws and he was just so limited. It's really hard to criticize him for anything he was doing on the floor last night. You were, if you were a Nets fan, if you were a Nets player or a coach, you were just happy to see him out there, his presence on the floor, given the fact he – a lot of players I think would have – would have missed more time with that injury than he did. He forced himself back because of the Kyrie Irving injury. And so I, I find it hard to really criticize him for, for anything. Let's go to uh, Terrence in the Bronx. Terrence, you have a thought on the Milwaukee Bucks. Go ahead. Yes, actually, I'm going to both. Both coaches did a horrible job. I mean, Nash could have took the time out just to give his, you know, KD and, and Harden a breather against set up a play. But, um, and also, he could have he could have used Jeff Green more. I mean, he had 27 points a couple of games ago. But um, you know, with uh, you know Budenholzer, he did a horrendous job. Never double KD. Never try to put uh, Harden in a pick and roll, see if they would switch, or to just back him down, and and you know, or, or whoever he was guarding, throw the ball in and try to get get him like to, to do something. You know, them to expend his energy. He played 52, 53 minutes. So he didn't spend any energy on defense. They never went at him. And then for the 2.1 play for Lopez, like, did he not say it was 2.1 seconds to go or what? Like, <laughs> Bruno's did a t- tremendous, horrible job. And that play was horrible. Why don't coaches have their star play? Why didn't Giannis take the ball out, give the ball, and get it back? Usually it's a lot well, easier for the guy to get the ball back from, from, from being the out-of-bounds person. Hey, Terrence, a good, good phone call. I appreciate it. I actually agree with most of your points. I think with the one area of criticism that – that I would have for Steve Nash is Jeff Green. He has a, a bad foot, by the way, plantar fasciitis, which is a problem, and, and that flares up, and then you get a break from it, then it flares up again. But he did have 27 points in Game 5, and he had no points and no role in that game last night at home. Uh, he had a huge game at home in Game 5. I thought there should have been a place for him in that game, and there wasn't. Steve Nash did not find any role for him 
in Game 7 last night at Barclays Center. So, Budenholzer, I, it's hard to believe that you would say the guy didn't have a great series. He just won a Game 7 on the road, and he's advancing as a coach. But I agree with Terrence as far as Game 5 is concerned, in particular, where how in the fourth quarter did you not blitz Durant with a double team, just get the ball out of his hands, and if, hey, if Blake Griffin or Joe Harris – or somebody else is going to make a shot to beat you, then you just say, okay, we were not going to win this game. But to not double-team him in the fourth quarter of Game 5 when Kevin Durant was playing as at a, a level so high that we've rarely seen a superstar match that in the playoffs, I, I could not understand it. But he survived it. His team won. He moves on. So it, it is hard to criticize him. But Game 5, his coaching defensively down the stretch was – was really hard to believe. Let's go to Len in Staten Island. Len, you have a thought on the Brooklyn Nets bench. Go ahead, Len. Yeah, good morning. Good afternoon. By the way, one of the reasons I called was to tell you how good you are on the radio, by the way. Enjoy your oh, work. As well, I don't know if a whole lot of people agree with you, Len, but yeah, thanks for I sharing that. I wish you were on more. But, <laughs> you, know, you know, two things. If you think about a game of inches, right, when, when Durant put up that shot at the end of regulation, I thought it was a three. Boy, I mean, so close to eliminating the Bucks that little toe that was on that line and all this conversation we're not having, right? They win, they move on. But I also blame Sean Marks here because the bench didn't produce. So why didn't he give all year? We heard about the Nets, the Nets, all these great, all these good players, all these role players. They didn't produce. So obviously they weren't as good as we thought. Well, I think that, you know, Len, thanks for the call. I, I, Listen, Jeff Green produced 27 points in Game 5. And I would put that, the fact that he did not make any contribution whatsoever, and I, I, I'm guessing his foot really hurt him last night, but he played through it in this series. He, he's a really distinguished veteran. If you look at his career, he's had a really good long career. It feels like he's been in the league for 20 years. And there, Nash should have found a way to get him involved. That was the missing piece last night. Harris has just been out of it this entire series, but he was a really good player all year for them. It's just he couldn't make a shot in this series when the Nets really needed him to, given their injuries. But the other players, non-Big 3, and we're obviously also talking about starters here with Harris and Blake Griffin, he had some big moments as well. But the bench really struggled. I just think they needed one more guy, and Jeff Green was that guy. And Steve Nash could not get him involved in the game. And that is really more on coaching on him than I think it's on Sean Marks. Let's go to George in Baltimore. George, you have a thought on James Harden. Go ahead. Yeah, I think Harden was such an inspiration, you know, in game five, you know. And, and what I think what Nash had a look at was, you know, we, we got game five. Not that you can see the game, game six, but I would have sat Harden for game six and said, let me give him a rest now, a blow, because I can bring him back in game seven. Use green like you said, you know. I mean, I mean, I, I, I just think that, you know, uh, he had a look at that injury situation and say, you know, uh, I'm going to go into six. I'm going to rest my guy. I'm going to get ready for seven. You know, like you, you don't like to concede a game, but you look at it realistically. My team is banged up. Harden was an inspiration out there in game five, but he needed a blow. Give him a blow, you know, and he probably would have been much fresher for last night. 
Another thing you, a previous caller brought up with I thought was excellent, I think you'll agree with, is that Nash should have called a, a timeout in that overtime to give them a blow. You know, they were missing shot after shot. Milwaukee was done. Did you see how they were? They were done. They well, were George, done. And then that's I, I just, just think, put them away. Thanks for the call. I, I just think it's, it's a classic second guess there because now if – Kevin Durant did not get the ball, and he did not get that last shot in overtime. I think it's a more legitimate criticism. But the fact of the matter is, when you call a timeout, you're giving your guys a rest, and Durant needed it, Harden might have needed it, but you're also allowing the defense to set up. And so the ball was in Durant's hands. Nash, a Hall of Fame player, played in, I don't know, 120 playoff games, whatever it is. He's, he, he didn't win a championship, but he's had a lot of postseason experience. He felt the game. He felt the moment. He got the ball to Kevin Durant. Durant got the last shot. And there's no guarantee if you call a timeout, you diagram a play, given the defense having a chance to set up, that you're going to get the ball to Kevin Durant in a spot where he can get a shot off. So I, I just don't have a big problem with Durant. Another minute on the bench, maybe it would have helped him a little bit. Maybe not. He was so exhausted, played 53 minutes. I'm not sure that would have made a big difference there. But the coach made a decision. To go with the flow there, a Hall of Fame player, been in these moments before, and his best player had a shot. He missed it. Now, you could quibble with, well, was there an opportunity over time here to get Kevin Durant a blow in that game? Uh, Nobody complained about it in game five when he played the entire 48. I understand this was 53 minutes, but Steve Nash gambled with Harden and Durant going the full 53 because he felt he didn't have enough firepower to win the game, even though they were at home. If those guys took even a minute off, and it just didn't work out. In the end, Milwaukee, and they had as much to lose here as the Nets did. The Nets will come back next year and be the favorite, as I said earlier, to win the whole thing. They might be the favorite the next three years. I'm not saying they're going to win a championship. I think they will. I think this is a painful learning experience, and they're going to have to find a way to keep these guys healthy, at least two of them. One and a half is not enough to win this series or win a championship, certainly. They need to. They got a really bad break with the Kyrie injury. That was a game changer in this series. Without that injury, I think most people outside of Milwaukee would agree that the Brooklyn Nets would be going to the Eastern Conference Final against the winner of tonight's Game 7 between the Sixers and the Hawks. We've got the Clippers and Suns Game 1 out west of the finals coming up right here on 98.7 ESPN at 3 o'clock. But before we get there... Got a great guest. Tim Bontemps does a great job covering the NBA for ESPN.com and a really nice guy as well. He's up uh, next right here on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back and happy Father's Day. Ian O'Connor in for Gordon Damer. On 98.7 ESPN, Tim Bontemps, terrific NBA writer and reporter for ESPN.com, joins us now. And, Tim, let's talk about Steve Nash and the way he coached that game last night. I didn't really have any problem with not calling a timeout at the end of overtime. Durant, his best player, got a shot. It didn't go in. And, and they lost the game and the series. But did you have any issue with the way he coached the game or even the, the series as a whole? Well, first off, Ian, happy Father's Day to you, and congrats you. on the radio on uh, joining my old employer at the Post, which I'm still very happy about. Thanks, and, buddy. And uh, as far as the game last night goes, my 
my only potential criticism of Steve Nash would be, I understand why he played Kevin Durant the entire game, uh, given the situation the Nets were in. I do think it would have behooved him to try to find a couple breaks here and there to maybe get him out for a little bit. Because you could see, especially in the second half of that game, uh, and, and certainly especially in the overtime, Durant just ran out of gas. And, you know, trying to play, playing 48 minutes in game five, playing over 40 in game six, coming back and playing 53 in game seven, you know, everybody in that game was completely exhausted, which I, I totally get, uh, given the, the stress and the amount of energy everybody's putting into every possession at both ends of the court. But it, I just think, looking back on it, you would have liked him to have a little bit more juice in his legs on that last shot, right? Because I'm totally with you. I thought no timeout was great. It allowed them to make sure Durant had the ball. He got isolated. Drew Holiday's a great defender, but he got exactly the kind of shot he would want. And, I, you know, I had a clean look at it. I thought it was it was right on line to go in. You know, Drew Holiday said after the game it was scary when it left his hand, and I certainly thought he was going to make another crazy shot to tie the game, but didn't. And, uh, you know, with that, Brooklyn season came to a pretty sudden end. Tim Bontemps, 98.7 ESPN, and – the, the, the shot at the end of regulation, I from a distance, I thought it was a three. And Marv Albert called it a three on the air. I think most people in the building thought it was a three. And, of course, you look at the replay, Tim, and you see that his toe is on the line, and it's a game of inches, right? And so the Nets uh, are that close, as Durant said afterward, to sending the Bucks home. Instead, they go home. Uh, what, what do you think that this series, even in defeat, and it's rare for a superstar athlete to lose a game seven – and at least I thought his legacy, Durant's, expanded in this series. What do, you, what do you think this series and this run, even though it ended early, did for Kevin Durant in terms of his legacy and maybe as he tries to climb the ladder of historical greats? I think it reminded everybody that Kevin Durant went healthy is the best player on the planet or at minimum in that conversation and is, in my opinion, the greatest scorer in the history of basketball. You know, he didn't score 100 points in the game. Like Bill Chamberlain, he scored 81 points in the game like Kobe Bryant, but Kevin Durant is better than anybody I've ever seen, and I think anybody in the history of the sport, at scoring from every single level. He can get to the rim because he's enormous. Uh, he's got the ball handling ability of a guard. He Every time he shoots the ball, I am surprised when it misses. He's got perfect form. He can rise up over anybody. He's got unlimited range. And on that play against P.J. Tucker, you know, I, I was amused in this series People kept yelling for Jan Setacupo to guard Kevin Durant just because that's what people do. They say, just throw him on Kevin Durant. That's what you're supposed to do. There's not a better person on the planet to guard Kevin Durant than P.J. Tucker. A guy who's known him for 15 years was his uh, a guy who shepherded him through his recruiting trip at the University of Texas back in the mid-2000s. And for him to go up against a guy like that for seven games to play every second of that game, and then make that shot, that insane turnaround jumper by the game. And it was funny. I, I actually, on that thought, on that shot, Ian, I thought he was much farther inside the line. Like, I, I actually had the opposite reaction, where I, I thought it was a two when he let it go. And then I, only on the replays later did I see how close he was to actually ending the series with that shot. But to just make that kind of play in that moment with all the uh, the the – the emotion and energy he had expended to just keep the Nets in that series with all the injuries they've had and everything else they've gone through. Like I said, I just think that whole thing was a reminder to your point that even in a loss, this guy is as good as anybody who has ever played the game and to come back off the Achilles injury and play this way as a basketball fan, it's 
just been a very cool thing to see. And Tim, with the injury to Kyrie Irving, obviously Harden's playing on one leg. And still, Joe yep. Harris has an, an open three with 57 seconds left in OT that yep. if he makes that shot, I think they advance to the conference finals despite everything that they've had to endure, at least up until that yep. point. He misses. He had a terrible series. They needed him to make a few shots. If he made a few shots, they're in the conference finals, no question about it. And so now I think the Nets are going to come back with the same group pretty much. They'll be the favorite to win it all next year, I think. But they're all the big three are all eligible for extensions this offseason. Josai, worth $11, $12 billion, has the money to pay them long term. <laughs> like, where, where do you see the yep. big three going from here, Tim? Well, listen, there, there are a lot of questions for this next team. And you make a great point about Joe Harris, and he was awful in this series. He, he shot worse from three-point range over the final five games than Sirius and John Stedekumpo, right? Which certainly says That's uh, all you need to know about his performance. But at the same time, Jeff Green made seven threes in game five. Blake Griffin, I think, shot 45% from three in the series, or well north of 40, right? Like That sort of stuff kind of balances out over the course of the series. What doesn't balance out is, to your point, that Kyrie Irving misses the second, second half of the series with that sprained ankle. And James Harden, while he came back and was still able to do some stuff, obviously was not anywhere near the player that he normally is, given he could barely do anything beyond a, a light trot on the court with that hamstring strain that he was just kind of gutting his way through over those final three games. So, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see both if Joe Sy is willing to give each of those guys, you know, well north of $100 million um, in extensions this summer. Uh, if any of them don't extend, it opens up the possibility that any of them could leave in a year, which certainly, given the amount of draft picks the Nets have given up in the future, uh, is going to be a pretty interesting situation for them to be in. And look, you saw in this series, right, when you get into the later rounds of the playoffs, you need to be able to have six or seven guys that you can rely on to be out there in those moments to play in big spots. And that does require some depth, even if you have some of the best players in the league on your team. You know, go back to the Heat, go back to the Warriors. Those teams had, you know, sixth, seventh, and eighth guys that their team could play. And Bruce Brown is going to be up for a restricted free agent contract this summer. He could get paid. Jack Green and Blake Griffin could both potentially get paid. Those guys all played huge minutes last night. So they have a lot of questions to answer, and it's going to be very, very interesting to see uh, how much money Josiah is willing to spend and how expensive this team is willing to get uh, to try to get this first championship in Brooklyn for the Mets. And Tim, final thing, and, and by the way, Jeff Green, who had 27 in Game 5, had no role in that game last night. Didn't have a field goal attempt in 13 minutes. I know yeah. he's got the foot problem, but that not getting anything from him in a Game 7 at home after he was so good in Game 5 at home, that, that was a problem. And I would criticize Steve Nash on that front, unless you're going to tell me that Green's foot was really – a bigger issue last night than it was in Game 5. But let me ask you about uh, Sixers and the Hawks Game 7 tonight. I like the Sixers in that game to see the Bucks in the conference final. How do you see that one playing out? I, I tend to agree real quick on, on the Jeff Green situation. I do wonder if his foot bothered him a little more uh, after that Game 5. Also, Blake Griffin was so good last night that I think he just chose to ride with uh, Joe Harris and Blake instead. Um, but it's certainly a fair... Um, that's certainly a fair point to make as far as the Jeff Green situation goes. And as far as this game tonight, I have no idea. I mean, I, I expect the Sixers to win because they're at home and they should win and they're the better team and more talented team. But 
if we've learned anything in these playoffs is that you should, whatever you should expect to happen probably isn't going to happen. And when you look at all the, the various levels of chaos that are going on with the Sixers, with Danny Green out, with Ben Simmons afraid to shoot free throws, let alone have the ball in the final moments of the game, to Joel Embiid playing on this you know, small tear in his lateral meniscus, look at all this different stuff that's going on and you know it's certainly there for Atlanta to come into here to a game seven and and steal this and you know the Hawks are obviously a young team but I've never seen a player in, that I can think of raise their level in terms of their respect around the league more than Trey Young has in these playoffs and you know Philly has a terrific home court advantage but Atlanta's already walked in there and won two games in this series so I certainly don't think they're going to be afraid um, so yeah, it's going to be a fascinating environment in Philly. Those fans are tense. They're nervous about how their team has played. And there's a lot on the line for the Sixers, most notably the future of this Joel and B. Ben Simmons partnership. So like I said, I, I think the Sixers will win, but I certainly don't feel confident about it. And it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. And Nate McMillan has done a, a terrific job, but uh, read Tim Bontemps. Do yourself a favor and read Tim on ESPN.com. Tim, thanks so much for the insight and we will talk to you soon, buddy. Anytime, Ian. Take care, man. All right, Tim Bontemps, and good stuff from him. I think I, I still like the, the the Sixers tonight. If the Hawks win that game seven, you can't be surprised anymore. I, I was surprised, frankly, they beat the Knicks in the first round and that they've taken it to seven. I thought this was a five-game Sixers series win, and it hasn't played out that way. So anything can happen in a game seven, as we found out last night. And as I mentioned, Kevin Durant's legacy to me was greatly enhanced in defeat, if that's possible. But I... I wonder what you think of Durant's legacy, particularly as it relates to LeBron James. The greatest player of this generation, I think, is widely believed to be LeBron James. Kevin Durant is four years younger than LeBron. He has two rings. LeBron has four, four rings with three different teams. Durant has the two with the one, trying to add one with the second team. But what he did in this postseason, is he closing the gap? He's four years younger, so time is really on Durant's side to try to make up ground in this unofficial I, nobody's going to catch Michael Jordan in the goat race in the NBA. LeBron may have a shot, an outside shot. Durant won't get there, but can he someday be considered really the signature player of this generation, the LeBron generation? Is that possible, or does he have too much ground to make up at this point despite being four years younger? Your thoughts on that, 1-800-919-3776. If you want to also talk about Steve Nash, his coaching performance, or lack thereof, Last night at Barclays Center, give us a call, 1-800-919-3776, right here on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back. Ian O'Connor, columnist for the New York Post, in for Gordon Damer here on 98.7 ESPN. Some good stuff from Tim Bontemps on the Bucks and Nets and Kevin Durant, his legacy, and it grew in this series, even though it ended in defeat. But I think Durant, for those who really hadn't seen his greatness at such a high level, well, he was a two-time finals MVP. If you hadn't appreciated it at uh, the point before he arrived in Brooklyn and started playing for the Nets, I think this series gave you just a new look at him post-Achilles surgery. The fact that he might even be better now than he was before that surgery, which is hard to believe, but Steve Nash said it the other night, it's amazing we're even having that conversation that he could be actually better now than he was before that terrible injury suffered in the 2019 
finals. But his legacy now is he's climbing the ladder of historical greats. I think he was safely inside the top 20 players of all time, maybe uh, before arriving in Brooklyn or starting uh, with the Nets and playing uh, this postseason. I think he's now moving towards that top 10. And so I wrote a little bit about his legacy compared to LeBron's. LeBron is the signature player of this generation with the four championship rings for three different teams. Can Kevin Durant, being four years younger, with time on his side, someday maybe match LeBron as a signature player of this generation, or is he out of reach? Steven in the Bronx, on the phone lines, you have a thought on LeBron and KD. Go ahead, Steven. Yeah, hi. Um, thank you for taking the call. Um, I feel like KD is probably number one. I'm sorry, not number one. Um, number two, if not maybe number three in, in this generation. I can't think of someone else. But um, I, I think LeBron has to be the marquee player of this generation. Um, I mean, he resurrected Cleveland and made and brought the first championship to that city in almost a century, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, and, you know, KD was also was always really known for his offensive prowess, not so much his, his defense. And um, LeBron was just the overall better player, being able to defend anywhere, um, anyone on the court from the one to the five. And offensively, his jump shot was always respectable, but when he would go to the rim, there wasn't really many people who could stop him in the league. Well, listen, I think – thanks for the call, Stephen. KD can play defense. He, he, he offered the Nets some rim protection. And offensively, he's just – I've never seen a player in the history of the league with his skill set on the perimeter. At He's listed at 6'10". It seems like he's 7 feet. You know, it, it's funny, in, in a sport, in a league where listed heights are always exaggerated – Kevin Durant seems taller than 6'10 to me. That wingspan is 7'5", 7'6", is, is maybe partly responsible for that perception, at least that I have. But to see his crossover dribble ability to, to break free on the perimeter at that size with as a lethal jump shooter from three or, or long or mid-range twos, we, we've never seen a player like that. You might say Dirk Nowitzki at that size was a great outside shooter. He couldn't break free on on the perimeter like KD can. He didn't have that kind of crossover ability where he could break your ankles and then rise up and shoot. Dirk was a great player, don't don't get me wrong, but he just was not the same kind of dynamic force on the outside like KD is. And and he can do Durant could do everything. He can go to the hole, he can pull up for the mid-range shot. He he has the the three-point shot and just his ability to make a play to to make his own shot. I think is like at that height something we've never seen before in the NBA. So, so where is it going to go from here for Kevin Durant in terms of legacy, in terms of being considered one of the greatest players of all time? I think that Jordan is out of reach. I think uh, LeBron is not out of reach. He's because KD is four years younger. He's going to have opportunities, and this was a, this was a missed opportunity. Let's face it. Despite the the Kyrie Irving injury, or really even because of it, if he could have found a way to get out of this series and ultimately win a championship with Harden playing part of the playoffs, at least on one leg, and Kyrie being out for so many games with the badly sprained ankle that Durant last night called gruesome, it would have done a a lot for his legacy going forward. But he's going to have chances. I think, as I said earlier, they'll be the pick next year to win it, assuming everybody is healthy. Going into next season, we'll see how it plays out. They're also all three eligible for contract extensions this offseason. Will Joe Sy decide to extend all three? 
And he certainly, as I mentioned earlier, uh, with a net worth of about $11 billion, he can afford it. The question is, does he want to do that right now, do the Nets, or do the members of the Big Three decide to punt until next offseason for those extensions? one 800 Let's go to Andrew in the Bronx. Andrew, you have a thought on LeBron versus KD. Go ahead. Yeah, how you doing today? I just wanted to say that I don't think Kevin Durant could ever come close to LeBron James for this simple reason. LeBron James makes everyone around him so much better. When he went to the finals, he made Del DeNova into a good player. He's just so good at getting everyone involved, and he could get to the rim at will, which Kevin Durant never is going to come close to that. That's not a bad point. I do think LeBron is better at, uh, at, at elevating teammates. I would agree with that point. And he also has... Has him on rings, four to two MVPs, four to one, but Durant does have opportunities coming that, if he stays relatively healthy, could uh, help his case going forward. The Nets are going to have to win another. Well, they don't have any championships. The only championships they have, you have to go back to the ABA days of Dr. J in the 1970s when they won two. Those are the last titles this franchise has won in any league. But for them to uh, win a ring or two with KD as the centerpiece. That's going to go a long way toward moving him up that list of historical greats. Where he is right now, he's probably in that top 15 all time. Some people might have him inside the, the top 10, but I think it's an interesting debate. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to Jay in Brooklyn. Jay, you have a thought on that debate between LeBron and Durant. Go ahead. How you doing? Hey, Jay. Uh, so, yeah, so – it's just you can't really compare KD and LeBron because, okay, the, the style of play KD is this amazing player, maybe one in a generation offensively on what he does on the court. But just what LeBron does with his teammates and the guys around his supporting group, he just makes them so much better on the court. You put LeBron on this Brooklyn Nets team, and they're, they win in the finals, guarantee. You, you put LeBron with a player like James Harden and these guys, that's, that's a great team. Well, it would be a great team, too, if James Harden were healthy for KD and, and Kyrie Irving uh, was also healthy at, at the same time. Th- this team would have won the championship. I think a neutral observer would look at that lineup, would look at the, the Nets roster, what they were getting from other places at different points in the postseason, and say, yes, the Nets are going to win the whole thing. I had Jeff Van Gundy on the radio last weekend, and he said if it was – a choice between the Brooklyn Nets and the rest of the NBA field, he would put his money on the Brooklyn Nets. He would not take the field. And I think a lot of people felt that way. And I always believed that if they had two healthy, two of the three, that would be enough. But they didn't. They didn't have two healthy. Harden did what he could out there. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for fighting through as soon as he saw Irving out and was going to be out. He rushed back. He wasn't really ready to be a big contributor, and he did it anyway. So James Harden's legacy also enhanced in defeat. So coming up, we've got to talk about the United States Open. We've got two great guests coming up in Bob Harrig of ESPN, Mark Cannizzaro of the New York Post, both of them at Torrey Pines and the U.S. Open. It's going to be a fun Father's Day. We'll stick also with the, with the Nets and what happened last night at Barclays Center, Game 7. We'll talk about Game 7 Tonight, Sixers-Hawks. We have Clippers-Suns coming up at 3 o'clock. And also some golf. Ian O'Connor in for Gordon Damer right here on 98.7 ESPN. This is the Gordon Damer Show on 98.7 ESPN. 
Welcome back and happy Father's Day. Ian O'Connor, sports columnist with the New York Post, in for Gordon Damer on the greatest radio station in the greatest city in the world, 98.7 ESPN. We've got Bob Harrig of ESPN coming up from Torrey Pines and the final round of the United States Open. Mark Canazaro, the Post later on, also from Torrey Pines. But we're talking Nets, Bucks, Game 7, where the Nets go from here, where Kevin Durant's legacy goes from here. And if you have thoughts on that, thoughts on the way Steve Nash coached that game last night, 1-800-919-3776. And by the way, not everything is grim in Brooklyn. Terrence Mann, who was born in Brooklyn, he went off with 39 points in that game six over the Jazz for the Clippers in his previous 25 playoff games over two years in the league. He had 59 total points, a 2.4 average, broke out for 39 against the Jazz to get the Clippers over the top, which to me, speaking of stars' legacies, I think that was a huge thing for Paul George without Kawhi Leonard to to push that team into the conference finals. We'll have uh, game one of Clippers' Suns right here on 98.7 at 3 o'clock. We've got Sixers-Hawks game seven tonight, which will be a lot of fun. I suspect the Sixers will win that series. It's a little dicey when you've got a $177 million star in Ben Simmons who's afraid to shoot the ball. He took six shots in game six, three shots in game two. Atlanta's better than, than I thought. Nate McMillan deserves the half-season coach of the year, if you will, based on what he's done there after taking over for Lloyd Pierce. The Hawks have been just uh, terrific, and they've got a bright future, and Things are going to be interesting in the East now. Where does uh, Tom Thibodeau take his program? Do they make a, a big step forward next year? Who's going to be their point guard? Who do they sign? Who do they not keep? So uh, the Knicks will be interesting. The second part of their Tibbs journey next season as other teams look to improve in, uh, in the Eastern Conference. The Nets are going to be interesting to watch this offseason. Do they extend all three of the big three? And... They're going to be together for a little while here, and they'll have opportunities to win a championship. They blew a big one last night. I'm not saying they would have won the NBA title for sure. I thought they would as long as Kyrie came back at some point and Harden's leg improved over time. But you got to give the Milwaukee Bucks credit. I don't think Budenholzer had a really good series, but he won it. I thought his defensive strategy in approaching game five at the end, not blitzing Kevin Durant, with the double team to get the ball out of his hands and just force somebody else to beat their team in game five really didn't make much sense. But Coach Bud moves on to the conference finals against the winner of that game seven Sixers-Hawks. 1-800-919-3776. If you have a thought on Bucks nets on KD, let's go to the phone lines. And let's go to Jerome in East Orange. You have a thought on LeBron versus KD. Go ahead, Jerome. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, I really feel like LeBron's ability to pull the most out of his teammates uh, goes unmatched. I mean, Kevin Durant is a great player. I felt bad for him because he left it on the floor without a doubt. But let's be honest, there's there's like three busloads full of guys that got rings because of LeBron James whose names we probably won't remember five years from now. And I really can't say that about uh, KD, and I don't think we will be able to say that about KD at any point. Well, I, I, Jerome, thanks for the call. And that you're the third caller to say that LeBron is better at elevating his teammates, and, and I think it's a good point, but I don't think LeBron James could have done any more for this group with Kyrie Irving out and James Harden injured 
than KD did. I'm not sure what else he could have done, what else was humanly possible for Durant to do in this series than what he did. His performance in Game 5, uh, I've been doing this for 35 years. I just don't remember a better playoff performance than, than that one, 49-17-10, and 10, playing 48 minutes. And frankly, Game 7, to make a shot like that, and I asked Durant afterward if that was the biggest shot of his career, even though it was one that didn't end up uh, with a victory by two inches of his big toe basically being on the three-point line, or else maybe he would have said yes to that question. Instead, he said, no, I've, I've made much bigger shots than that in my career, and I was really trying to think of a bigger shot he's made than with one second left in a Game 7 when your team is down two points. And it was contested. It was a fadeaway from 24 feet. I don't know. I don't remember it. But he said he's had uh, others, many others, that were bigger than that. <laughs> I don't know how much bigger they could be. Let's go to uh, Greg in New Jersey. Greg, you have a thought about the magnitude of the Nets' Game 7 loss. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the call. Sure. I just think that um, we're letting the Nets as a whole get away easy. Um it's not easy to win championships, and I don't know when it became acceptable to be a let's get them next year type team. You know, sort of like the Yankees for the past five years. Oh, they have all the talent in the world, but you know what? Next year is unpredictable. And so I think that people are just sort of because Kevin Durant did leave it on the floor, because James Harden, you know, pushed through it maybe 50% or less, that we're just sort of letting them get away with such a massive loss of opportunity, which this was. And, you know, I just want to get your thoughts on that, uh, you know, and I also agree with some of these callers. LeBron, uh, just a different level at this point. Um, maybe KD catches up. But anyway, I'll hang up and listen. Appreciate well, it. Thanks, Greg. A good phone call. I appreciate you making it. The, I think the magnitude of the defeat was tempered by the situation the Nets faced. And it's a, it's a tough way to look at it to say, hey, you should have found a way anyway. And at home – with the best player in the sport, I think the answer to that question is yes. I actually wrote that uh, for the New York Post, that you don't have a good enough excuse. You have excuses, but not a good enough one to lose this game when you're home in a game seven and you're suiting up the best player in the world. And yet they lost the game. And yet I'm not killing them for losing the game because in applying some common sense here and trying to be somewhat reasonable, I, I didn't think that, Despite what I – listen, I, I believe they should have won the game, but I've seen worse defeats. Let's put it that way. Now, if Kyrie Irving played, if Harden were 100% or nobody's 100% healthy this time of year, but if he were healthier than, than he played in that game, it, it's a different story. I think they'd be absolutely getting crushed, and I wouldn't mind leading the charge on that front. But given the circumstances – it was hard to kill them, I thought, being in the building that night after KD made the shot at the end of regulation for ultimately losing that game and this series. The Kyrie Irving injury is the reason why they're not going forward. I think every neutral observer and pretty much any fair-minded observer outside of Milwaukee proper would say that. Him landing on – and I don't think Giannis did it on purpose. I know that was out there on social media. I do not think he intentionally did that at all. I don't think he's that kind of player. And it just, it was, as Nash described it, an awkward play, but it was basketball. That happens. It happens all the time. Anyone who's played the sport at any level knows that sprained ankles, it's just part of it. <laughs> it's part of the game. And unfortunately, it was just terrible timing for it to happen to Kyrie in that moment. 
Uh, if it doesn't happen, the Nets are advancing, and they're playing the winner of Game 7 tonight between the Sixers and the Hawks. Let's go to uh, Keith and Far Rockaway. Keith, you have a thought on KD. Go ahead. How you doing, sir? Yeah, I, I just seen the game last night. It's like he's playing 5-1-1. He couldn't bring the ball up, get loose, get a shot. He had nobody to give it to, and he just couldn't do it by himself. Excellent. Excellent job. I got to give tip my hat to him. And, well, it's uh, as good, it's as good Keith, and thanks for the call. It's as good as uh, I've seen a star athlete in a situation like that where he's outman play in a playoff series, and there just was nothing left to ask him to do, I guess, other than make that shot over Holiday at the end of overtime, and he just had no legs left. And I don't kill Steve Nash for not calling a timeout there because ultimately he decided to go with the flow of the game. He's a Hall of Fame point guard. He's a guy who's played in a lot of playoff games. He didn't win a championship, but he's been in those situations. He felt the game, and it told him to not call a timeout. Durant got the shot. He missed it. Let's go to Joe in the car. Joe, you have a thought on Steve Nash. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, hi. Uh, happy Father's Day, and thanks for taking you the call. T- you too, Joe. Uh, hey, thanks. Um, just thinking about Steve Nash, I'm saying, why did he put Green in if he was hurt? Now, like you said, KD had you know, absolutely no help. He was basically doing everything by himself. But like in football and other sports, you know what? Sometimes you got to say, okay, just defense. I would have put Claxton in for rebounding and at least to protect the rim. So this way, Milwaukee doesn't get that many offensive uh, rebounds. They get seven up, uh, second chance opportunities on uh, on scoring. So I just kind of like, you know, in my head, I would say, hey, you know what? At least let me get some defense. And these um, um, uh, Green wasn't producing anything. And uh, geez, I forget the other guy's name now. Uh, the well, guy. Joe, yeah. I would say, and thanks for the call. Happy Father's Day. I think that green is is the area of attack if if you're criticizing Steve Nash. His foot may have been on fire because he's had a foot injury, but he scored 27 in game five at home. Usually the, the non-stars, and, and green's had a very good NBA career, don't get me wrong, but he's not one of the big three. He's a second-tier, third-tier guy at this point in his career. But those players in the playoffs are usually much better at home than they are on the road. So game five, he was a superstar, basically. And then game seven, he is a complete no-show. In 13 minutes, he didn't even try. He didn't even take a shot. So you got no points from the bench. Zero. It's hard to win a game seven. It's hard to win any game, never mind a, a game seven in a playoff series, when you got zero points from the bench. Green's the one guy. Of course, you could say, well, 57 seconds left. Joe Harris has that three. You have to make that shot. That's the one shot. That's why we paid you. And he felt terrible about his performance in this series. He said so afterward, the impact that he had on his team losing this series. And that's all fine and dandy. But your job in that moment to get the ball with your team depleted and you have an open three, that shot has to go down with 57 seconds left. I believe the score was 111-111 at that point. And that... That was the game right there. That was the series. That puts the Nets in the conference finals, and he missed it. Mike and Edison. Mike, you have thoughts on the magnitude of the Game 7 loss. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, listen, uh, when you're talking about LeBron and KD, I mean, listen, KD has 48. He has no championships if he doesn't run to a 73-win team after he got beat by them. And listen, be honest, the guy's 0 for 6 in overtime. He didn't come up with when he had to. Well, I mean, I, am I wrong? I, I think there was the a pretty good reason for that. The guy put he played 53 minutes, I mean, <laughs> and yeah, he, he did go 0 for 6. The team as a whole went 11, uh, missed 11 or 12 shots, 
everybody was shot in overtime. And it's not like Milwaukee started that overtime really any better. That Both teams were bad in the first half of that overtime. And, and that's why I said I mean, Harris had a shot to, to basically, I'm not saying it was going to uh, put the game away, but it puts the Nets up three with less than a minute to play. And I think that would have been the difference. And he missed it. So that's the way it goes. And Milwaukee deserves credit for finding a way to win a game seven on the road. Let's go to Sonny in Queens. Sonny, you think this uh, game seven defeat might be a blessing in disguise. Why? Absolutely, because first of all, coming off of Kitty's injury, we've never seen a player look this great. And I'm glad he, they're kind of out of the playoffs because KD won't play another 48 minutes and go over whatever. He was clearly fatigued, man. He was playing too much minutes. Well, that's a unique take. I, I've not heard that one yet. It's good that now he can get some extended rest for an injury that's already Absolutely. healed. But thanks for making the call. I mean, that is a, a very unique take and not one I think a lot of people are going to share. But uh, Durant uh, did everything that he possibly could to get the Nets into the conference finals. And you saw him doubled over at the end there and his hands on his knees, his head lowered, his body basically folded over, exhausted. And that said it all. That was a picture that was worth a thousand words and a million words, really. And so he was spent. He was exhausted. He had nothing left to give, and it wasn't enough. The Bucks advance. Your calls, your thoughts on Nets-Bucks Game 7, where the Nets go from here, where Kevin Durant goes from here. Give us a call, 1-800-919-3776, right here on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back and happy Father's Day. Ian O'Connor in for Gordon Damer on 98.7 ESPN. We've got Clippers Suns game one coming up at three. We've got Sixers Hawks game seven tonight. So a big and busy day right here on 98.7 ESPN. We're talking about the the Nets there. Uh, It's not a disastrous loss other than any game seven loss is disastrous because it ends your season just based on the circumstances they faced. I I still thought they had enough to win the game going into it, and they did. They needed Joe Harris to make a shot. They needed something out of Jeff Green. They got, and I'm not saying it was necessarily his fault, but he played 13 minutes, didn't take a shot, didn't score a point after scoring 27 in game five. So that was a, a fairly big factor. They needed something other than a one legged Harden helping out. Kevin Durant, Blake Griffin made some shots and some plays, so he he did provide some help. It just wasn't enough in the end. Coming back next year, they will be the pick. They will be maybe not everyone's pick to win the whole thing. At some point in these next two, three years, and all three guys are eligible for extensions this offseason, we'll see how that plays out. That'll be pretty interesting to watch if they punt on those extensions till next offseason or if they do it, all three guys, this offseason. But they're going to be the favorites in the next, say, three years. And this was an opportunity missed in large part because of the Kyrie Irving sprained ankle in the middle of this series, which really changed everything. After those first two games in Brooklyn, wow, you felt like the Nets are just going to steamroll the competition and win a championship. And it's amazing how quickly things can change in sports and boy, did they ever change in Milwaukee. Speaking of Milwaukee, we'll get to your phone calls in a second. 1-800-919-3776 is the phone number. I'm in Milwaukee the other night before game six. They're doing a fan contest. And so there's a guy who was really struggling. <laughs> it was a trivia contest, and it was, it was mostly music-based. And they throw up a photo of Elton John on the 
Jumbotron and they asked the contestant to name that person and he said John Elton. So he got that wrong. John Elton. That was that got a good laugh. So then the next image on the Jumbotron is Travis Scott's Astro World album cover. My son Kyle and on Father's Day I should say I have a terrific son. My wife Tracy and I are very blessed to have a great uh, 25-year-old son Kyle. He's a big Travis Scott fan. So I knew it. And, and it seemed like nobody in the arena knew it. And I'm yelling it out from the press box. I think people are looking at me like, how does this 56-year-old white guy know the answer to this question? It's Astro World. Nobody had a clue. And so I was uh, proud of that moment. And, of course, the contestant did not get it right. But uh, so it, it was fun times in Milwaukee, not for the Nets, as they lose that game, put themselves in position to host a must-have Game 7. They didn't get it. The Bucks deserve credit, even though, as I said earlier, that Budenholzer, I thought, actually struggled significantly in this series, particularly his defensive approach at the end of game five, to not double Kevin Durant and get the ball out of his hands when he was having one of the great games we've ever seen anyone have in the postseason was beyond me. But he wins a series, a big moment for the Greek freak to get to the conference finals now and have an opportunity in year, what is this, eight? I think it's his eighth season in the league. It's time for him to break through, particularly after the way they face-planted against Miami in the bubble playoffs last year in five games to come back this year and find a way to win this series. That is, when we're talking about where players stand historically, this could be a big moment for him, to win a championship, to survive a road game seven. So he deserves a lot of credit for what went down last night in Brooklyn. 1-800-919-3776 is our phone line. Let's go to GM in Valley Stream. He's got a thought on the Brooklyn Nets coach. Go ahead, GM. Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you. Go ahead. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there and the moms who are picking up the slack from that perspective as well. Um, So, really, I want to keep it very simple. I'm actually driving right now, so I'm on Bluetooth. I think they need to move on from Steve Nash. It sounds a bit abrupt, but... Apart from the injuries, which I feel that we're kind of like, it's the obvious thing to, you know, it took place, it, it's there, it's, it's, it's something to discuss and consider, but his rotations or lack thereof is very concerning. Um, I know he's a rookie coach, it, it, it was a, a wild experiment, but with that amount of talent, it's no time to goof off, experiment, Rick Carlisle happens to be available, let's think about that, let's, let's, let's think about replacing the head of the snake, so to speak. Uh, on the bench. Well, listen, thanks for the call. I think there's no way that's going to happen, of course. Steve Nash is an improving head coach. I think he overall did a, did a good, a very good job with his team, allowing them to – he gave them room to be who they are. He respected their their what they've achieved in this league, all three stars that he had, and I think they responded to that. The fact that Kyrie Irving and James Harden kind of on their own decided who was going to be the point guard and who was going to be the shooting guard – not a lot of head coaches really would have accepted that and just kind of went along with it. And Steve Nash, being a Hall of Fame player, I think he was actually a good choice to to coach this group. And he just he lost Kyrie Irving in this series, and he lost the real James Harden. Not a lot of coaches in the history of basketball would have found a way to to win a championship with uh, those cards being dealt that coach. I just think that it. Uh, it they could have won the series. You could argue, as I did uh, before the Game 7 started, that they should have won this series because you had the best player and you had home court advantage, and that should be enough. But it wasn't, 
And I don't think it is the end of the world. I think it's the end of the season and the end of an opportunity that they had and Durant had to, to get a ring. And so now they're going to have to make up for that next year or the year after. I think if you ask most people, will this group win a championship ring in the next three years? I think the answer is, is yes. They have to stay somewhat healthy or at least healthier than they stayed this year. Let's go to Glenn in Jersey City. Glenn, you had a thought on KD. Go ahead. Uh, Ian, pleasure talking to you. First you too, time. Glenn. Happy uh, Father's Day. I'm a huge KD fan. I got to change my point a little bit just here in your last caller. I got to call you this ask. I don't think you're giving Steve Nash enough criticism. It's definitely not his fault that they lost the series because, you know, like I said, those injuries, you can't overcome them. However, I don't care if KD scored 100 points. You're not winning without your bench. At some point, it was up to Steve Nash to say, listen, Joe Harris, you got to keep shooting. I don't care if you go 0 for 20. We can't win the title without you shooting, without uh, the rest of the bench shooting. So KD did his thing, played 53 minutes, but you're not going anywhere without the bench, and I don't think Steve Nash – emphasize that enough that, hey, we need the bench to, to, to make shots. And if you, we lose, we lose. But our best chance is Katie Evans. I've never seen a team let down a superstar more than the Nets bench and the other players did would let down KD. Well, Glenn, and I had a th- thank you for the call. Uh, Jeff Green, to me, is the focal point of that. I'd like to hear from him on the condition of his foot. He's had that foot injury for a while. But if you had 27 in Game 5 and you played 13 minutes in Game 7 and, and don't take a shot – I just that's where Nash one one player from the bench had to be a contributor last night and that did not happen. Ray in Brooklyn, you have a thought on Kevin Durant. Go ahead, Ray. Uh, absolutely, Ian. Thanks for taking the call. Listen, I'm more aligned with your way of thinking as it pertains to the conversation with LeBron and KD. Actually, I'm gonna take it a step further. I think KD surpassed LeBron a couple of years ago when he was thanking him in the finals. And I don't want to hear from LeBron James apologists who come out and say, oh, he had to join the 73-1 team. LeBron is the, the catalyst who created these super teams in Miami. Then he, you know, he left Dwayne Wade flat when he saw a newer version of him in Cleveland and Kyrie, traded for Kevin Love. Then he creates another super team in L.A. So can we cut Kevin Durant a little bit of slack with the whole super team thing? I mean, LeBron is the inspiration. He's the, he's the creator of that. Well, I, I agree with you, Ray, on that, and thanks for the call. I think that super teams, they're created because these great players see the way they're going to be judged down the road historically is often by how many rings you have. So the smart thing to do is to try to collect as many rings as possible. I think Kevin Durant figured that out, and he lost to LeBron's Miami team in the finals in five games with – the Thunder in Oklahoma City, and he looked at it. Now, you know, he had some good players on his side, too. He had Russell Westbrook, a younger James Harden, before I think people realize exactly how good James Harden was. But going up against Dwayne Wade and Bosh alongside LeBron said, you know what, I don't want to spend the rest of my career finishing second to this guy. I'm going to find teammates who are a little bit better than his, and that's what he did. And I never had a big problem with that because we're going to judge these guys on championship rings. Right now he's losing 4-2, to two, but he's got time to catch up. So I don't agree that he's surpassed LeBron. I don't think that's happened yet. But I do think, given that he's four years younger, he may have an opportunity. He's got some ground to make up. And last night, unfortunately, didn't go his way towards winning that third championship ring and cutting the deficit to 4-3. to three. Speaking of deficits, Bryson DeChambeau and Rory McIlroy are two back at the U.S. Open 
the two biggest names right there in contention to, to win. I think it'd be great for golf with Tiger Woods being out with his injury to, to have Rory McIlroy particularly come back and win his first major in seven years. Bryson DeChambeau has become a star. He wins for the second year in a row at the U.S. Open. That would be pretty big, too. We've got three people at the top in Russell Henley, Mackenzie Hughes, particularly those two who the average sports fan who doesn't really follow golf Never really heard of Louis Oosthuizen won the British, what, 11 years ago. Hasn't won a major since. They're at the top of the board. But people are looking at some of the big names who are challenging going into this final round at Torrey Pines, the U.S. Open. We've got Bob Harrick, who's a great golf writer and columnist at ESPN.com. He'll join us next. That's right here on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back. Ian O'Connor and Gordon Damer, 98.7 ESPN. It's a beautiful Father's Day in the greatest city in the world. And the greatest golf writer in the country, Bob Harrig of ESPN.com, joining us right now from Torrey Pines, the site of the United States Open final round today. And happy Father's Day, and thanks for taking the time, Bob. And looking at that leaderboard, I think the average sports fan right away is going to look below the leaders, Mackenzie Hughes, Oosthuizen, Russell Henley, and right at Rory McIlroy and Bryson DeChambeau, two shots back at three under. And and to me, I think DeChambeau is actually going to win and defend his title that he won at Wingfoot, Bob. But I think Rory winning is what's really going to be the best for the, the sport, the best story, just given with Tiger out. He's a charismatic figure. He hasn't won a major, as you know, in seven years. He had four at age 25, and it just feels like it's time for him to break through again. What do you think it would mean for golf if McElroy found a way to win his first major in seven years? I think you're right that that's the best story. There's no better story than Rory winning today. Obviously, Bryson would be great, too. He, he moves the needle quite a bit. But um, Roy is a very popular figure, well-liked, obviously a great player. And he, uh, you know, he's had this amazingly long drought of majors. It's kind of crazy to think it's been almost seven years. And he's yeah, really not had is. a lot of and chances, frankly. Obviously, it, it's a shame that Tiger's not part of this because he won eight times at Torrey Pines, as you know. But when, when he's out, he's injured, and... Who knows if he ever comes back. But until that point, golf needs star power. And Bryson DeChambeau gives you that. I think Rory gives you that maybe a little bit uh, a little bit more so. I think more people around the world are, are familiar with him than maybe DeChambeau. That, that might be changing. But when you look at the top of the board, Mackenzie Hughes, a guy who I don't think has a top 40 in a major. And Henley is a good player. He's been a good player. He's had some top 20s in, in majors. And Oosthuizen, of course, won the British. Of those three, if I asked you, Bob, which one is most likely to hold on and hold off the McElroys, DeChambeaus, and Roms, and even the DJs of the world, which of those three at the top do you think is most likely to pull that off? It would be Usti for sure. I mean, he, he, was in the, he was in the mix just last month at the PGA. In fact, he had a really good chance to win. Um, and he's... It's he's sort of you know he's finished second in all four majors. He has the runner-up slam, you know, and uh, he, uh, he it's sort of mystifying that he hasn't won more, uh, especially over here. He's got like nine year, wins in Europe, but his only PGA Tour win is that Open at St Andrews in 2010, 
So we're talking 11 years ago, and he won by a million there. And everybody thought he was going to be a world beater. Great swing, you know, just a, a swing you die for. And it's the, the tempo and the rhythm and the way he hits it. But for whatever reason, he doesn't get it done. You know, he didn't get it done last month. And uh, when, it, when you know, Phil kind of opened the door a little bit. So um, I would think, though, that he's the one out of those three that could hold on. As you noted, those other guys don't have a lot of experience at this level in, in terms of this type of heat. Uh, Mackenzie Hughes is only playing in his ninth major. And uh, as you noted, Henley's been around. He's, he's won tournaments. He's not done much in majors. And I don't like the way he's played the 18th hole the last two days. You know, he, he three-putted it on, on a Friday yesterday from the Tiger spot in the right rough. He dumped it in the bunker. He made a par, but that was a birdie hole yesterday. So um, I don't have a whole lot of faith in those guys. Bob Harrigan, 98.7 ESPN. And how far down the leaderboard will you go, Bob, before you cut it off and say, okay, these guys at this number don't have a chance? If you go down five shots back to even par, there's some interesting names there. You've got Kepka, you've got Justin mm-hmm. Thomas. Are those guys still in it, or do you have to be really under par entering this final round to, to really have a chance? They're only in it if they, if they just shoot a crazy low number, I think. The problem is there's too many guys ahead of them. You can't expect everybody to do nothing. You know, there's even though it's not that many shots, there's, what, nine or ten guys between them. And you would think that one of those nine or ten guys does something today that makes it hard for them to catch up. Obviously, the guys who are at five under, if they all falter, then it's really wide open. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's a good chance that one of those three guys at least shoots even par, and then now that guy at even still has to, you know, he has to shoot five under. Uh, I don't think we've had any 66s this week. You know, and I don't expect it to be easier today. So, uh, you know, it's a tough task, but if, if I'm them, I'm going for it. You know, you, you, you can play a little bit looser and, and maybe take a few more chances, feel like you have nothing to lose. Bob, DeChambeau interested me a lot. I, I think that uh, I'd pick him to win today and defend his title that he won at Wingfoot. I'm looking at his scores, 73, 69, 68. So he's improving every day. I like that trend. And obviously he's the biggest hitter on tour off the tee. And is he a guy who really is a perfect match for U.S. Open test that he just hits it over trouble? And when he's in trouble, he's so close to the green that it's not really having a dramatic negative impact on his game. Do you see him now almost as a, a perfect U.S. Open type of player? It's interesting because he doesn't really fit that mold that we think of a U.S. Open player, fairways and greens. You know, he only hit five fairways yesterday, but he hit 15 greens. 15 greens hitting only five fairways is phenomenal. And I think it goes to show that his, his strategy kind of works because even though he's in the rough a lot, he's finding a way to get it on the green. And, it's, and he's in the fairway just enough to give himself a few chances to knock it close. Obviously, he, he can dominate the par fives. Um, he didn't have a bogey yesterday either, another really good sign. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's really the way that we should be saying guys should approach – U.S. Open courses, you don't want to be in this rough. I mean, it's just nasty. It's, it's worse than the Wingfoot rough. Uh, but yet he's seemingly finding a way to do it. And, uh, like, I actually asked him about that yesterday. He's full on board with, with that strategy of, of just bombing it out there, finding it, hoping he gets in a few fairways. But if he doesn't, hey, I got a short iron out of the rough, and I think I can probably do better than other guys. 
Bob Harrig of ESPN.com right here on 98.7 ESPN in New York. And obviously no Tiger Woods. We don't know when or if he's going to play competitively again, Bob. And you've been uh, covering him for, for many years. And having won eight times at Torrey Pines, it just would have been a, a great spectacle to see him maybe have a shot to win another major and get to 16 and get closer to Jack Nicklaus at 18. That's Obviously not in play this week. I'm curious, is, is there a dramatic difference in the feel of a major championship golf event when Tiger is not there? You, you, again, you covered many majors with him as a in his prime at the top of his game when he was a dominant force in golf. When he's not there, does the tournament feel dramatically different? It's hard to compare it right now because of the limited crowds we, we have anyway. Um, you know, it's just not the same buzz right now because it's so few more, so many fewer people. They limited the number of people that were going to be here. But, like, there's no doubt that, at uh, say, at the Masters, you know, even if Tiger's shooting 75, the, you know, the buzz around him, even with a reduced crowd, is going to be so much bigger. So many people are going to be following him. It would have been huge with him this week, you know, so even, the, even with reduced – there's clear, there clearly is a difference in, in sort of the energy level. It's not that the energy level is low. It's just that he helps ramp it up. And, you know, Phil's got that. You know, he, the people that are following him are pretty into it. But, you know, Tiger's always taking it to another level, and here especially. So, yeah, it really is kind of a shame. You know, he, he looked forward to this one. It's such a big part of that 08 story. They awarded the U.S. Open to Tory in 2002, and he—that's all he talked about. Not to us, but to you know his inner circle. He couldn't wait for that U.S. Open, and it killed him that he was injured. And that's how you know he some, somehow willed his way to play, and then to, to, you know to actually win is remarkable. I should point out that Bob is working on a Tiger Phil book, which is going to be an absolute must-read when it comes out uh, next year. So look for that. The final thing, Bob, who's your pick today, and why? to win the U.S. Open? I'm with you on DeChambeau. I just think that, uh, you know, he's, he's got a lot, of, a lot of good things going for him. Rory's got some demons to overcome, you know. Just not gotten it done in this position lately. His, his swing is still not quite there, even though he won at Quail Hollow, uh, you know, last month. Um, that was a bit of an aberration, even the way he played that day. It would be great if he did. I hope he hangs in there be great for the game if he did um and it'd be kind of cool if it were him and bryson battling down to the end uh but i just i don't know i just have this feeling about bryson i thought yesterday was a great sign he overcame a really you know a tough first day and has grinded it back into this position and uh, i think he has an advantage with his length with one round to go no question 73 69 68 so maybe a 67 a winning 67 in the cards today for for bryson dechambeau the defending champ that's bob harrig the great golf writer, beat writer, and columnist for ESPN.com. Happy Father's Day, Bob, and enjoy the final round. Welcome back, and happy Father's Day. Ian O'Connor in for Gordon Damer on 98.7 ESPN. And Mark Canizzaro has been an outstanding columnist and golf writer at the New York Post for many, many years, and he's kind enough to join us right now from Torrey Pines in the side of the final round of the United States Open. Mark, thanks so much for taking that time. And just looking at the leaderboard, 
when you look at the names at the top, not recognizable to maybe a casual golf fan in terms of Mackenzie Hughes and Russell Henley, although Louis Oosthuizen won a major 11 years ago, so people know him. But if you were looking at the big names who are in position here to make a run, McElroy, DeChambeau, DJ, Rom, who do you think is most likely to do it and pull it off and win this Open? Well, Ian, what I am, first of all, I'm very happy to be with my new teammate, yourself. <laughs> Thank uh, you, me so too. Thanks for having Appreciate me on. Um, so I, I am most compelled today to see if Rory can play with freedom, which he has not done. In, in, you know, he hasn't won a major since 2014, as you know. Um, and he seems to always have one round where he seizes up. Usually it's the early rounds, as, as you know, that he's had issues in his first round uh, for, for a while now, particularly at the Masters. And then he go, you know, he'll go shoot a 75 on Thursday and then, and then you know, throw a 67 out on Friday. This week has been a little bit different. He's, been, he, he's kind of steadily hung in and played decently. And I'm kind of curious to see if he can just let it go today and play with freedom because I think that the, he's the one name on that board uh, that I would, if I was betting, I would put my money on. Um, I think Bryson's playing really well right now. But, you know, Bryson, to some degree, because he's doing that whole bomb and gouge thing, which worked at Wingfoot and it's been working so far here, just hit as long as he can off the tee with driver. You know, he got a few breaks yesterday, and he admitted it. You know, and he even said after his round, uh, you know, yesterday, you know, hopefully I'll get some more breaks, you know, on Sunday. So I think he relies a little bit on, you know, on, on getting a decent line when he doesn't hit a fairway, you know, as long as he hits down the, you know, down the way. So, I, you know, to me, those, those are the two guys. I, I, I don't think anybody – DJ maybe could get hot at one under. I don't know that the even pars. It's hard to make up five strokes in the U.S. Open, and uh, and and they don't really have a lot of breaks out there today. I mean, they've got some tees back. The 16th tee is, you know, I think it's like two playing like 230 to par three to 16. Uh, they had some tees moved up yesterday, so it was a little easier so they make a move. But I don't know that anybody's going to make a crazy move shooting a 66 to win the golf tournament today, for example. So. I like Rory there. You know, you mentioned Henley and uh, uh, and Hughes, Mackenzie Hughes there. Neither of those guys, obviously, has been in the cauldron of a major championship Sunday heat. In fact, both both of them have very, very spotty, I would say, bad records in majors. So, um, you know, I don't know that either of those guys hangs on. Uh, so, I think Rory, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to say, I would say Rory be the guy. Mark Canizero on 98.7 ESPN. I, I think Rory, Mark, is the best story for golf, him winning, coming, getting back into the winner's circle after winning four majors. What it, He had four at age 25 and, and none since. And we thought by now he'd have six or seven or whatever. And, and, and he's a charismatic guy. And I think without Tiger now for the foreseeable future, to have Rory come back would be great for golf. But I think DeChambeau, now I, I don't know if, if it usually works out this way. A lot of times I'll look at where those numbers are going in order here. Seventy three, sixty nine, sixty eight. So he's trending in the right direction, even though he did get a couple of breaks. I, I, I look at that and say, here's a guy who, well, maybe he'll shoot sixty seven today. He won the US Open last year that fly it over the rough, get it as close to the green as possible, even if I'm in the rough. That that approach seems to be working for him. How dangerous is he today in your opinion? I think he's very dangerous, Ian, and I think he's dangerous for for another reason that, that I kind of referred to Rory a minute ago. You know, Rory, you know, he hears that, you know, because we all ask him about it, and understandably so we should. You know, we're going on seven years without a major championship for a guy that we all know has as much talent as anybody in the game. And so I think with each major, you know, it's just natural for him to press. 
you know, Bryson is a defending champion, and he's in he's in position to defend right now. And and yeah, Rory's got four majors, but I would suggest to say that there's more pressure on Rory today than there is Bryson, who has only the one major, but it was last year, so he's fresh off of it. I think Bryson could probably you know be a little freer today, uh, you know, for just kind of talking a little psychological element of it, because he won last year. He's only a year removed, and if he doesn't win this this week today. You know, he, he, he was right there. In, you know, he, he pretty, put up a pretty good defense of his championship. So, uh, and listen, we all know how talented Bryson is and how far he hits it. So, uh, you know, I think he's very dangerous. To me, it's those two guys, really. Uh, and, uh, you know, no disrespect to Henley or Mackenzie Hughes. But, you know, and listen, Henley's a guy, you know, who a lot of people don't know. But, you know, he won his first, you know, he won his first PGA Tour event uh, out of Hawaii. Very first one he played which is pretty rare. He's also a guy that can throw a lot of birdies out, you know, out there. He can get hot. Um, but I just wonder if that is offset by just the pressure, you know, I mean, look what happened to Richard Bland yesterday. He was an awesome story, right? right. Um, you know, the 48 year old Englishman, you know, he looks like, you know, he's, you know, he looks like a guy who's playing at your local muni uh, up in North Jersey somewhere, you know, and, and here he was, you know, had a share of the lead going into, into Saturday. And I just, you know, I watched him play yesterday and it just was not as free as it was the first two days, you know, because that it's just, it's human nature, you know? Yeah. Not surprising that that happened. Uh, Exactly. And you talked about uh, a good story, Matthew Wolf, the guy disqualified from the masters has a ton of talent, mental health issues that he's been very public about in, in addressing. And here he is three shots off the lead. He struggled, I guess, late yesterday. Last I checked in on him, he was, closer to the lead than he is now but what do you see from him today and what kind of a story would that be if he overcame what he's been dealing with in terms of mental health to win the united states open well, i think it's a fantastic story and he's been in a room with touching to hear somebody like matthew who's a really very extroverted guy uh real people person and you know i think to some degree he wants to please he always talks about wanting to please the fans please everybody and I think he's put a lot of pressure on himself to do so. And maybe that's, I think that's part of maybe what kind of got, you know, got to him a little bit as he struggled. And uh, you know, he had a couple of two or three W withdrawals. Uh, as you mentioned, he was DQ'd from Augusta for signing a, you know, a lower score on a scorecard on the second round. But although he wasn't going to make the cut anyway, but uh, you know, you don't like to see a DQ next to your name, but you know, at the masters. So that's just, that's a, it's kind of a stain. So um, I think, you know, what's interesting is, Maybe Matthew, the first first two rounds, was playing. Speaking of playing freer, he came here by his own admission with no expectations. He just really wants to enjoy the game again, and uh, he played really well the first two days. You know, yesterday he kind of, you know, it was a little scratchy. Uh, I just wonder now that he's this close to the lead. You know, uh, does that get to him a little bit today? And you know, does he tighten up a little bit? Um, you know, Matthew had his 54 hole lead at Wing Foot, as you know, Ian last year at the U.S. Open, and shot 76 on Sunday. So I'm not saying there's any correlation there, but, you know, he does have that to draw on, too, so maybe that helps him today. Mark Canizero, The Post on 98.7 ESPN. I, I know you said the guys at even, they're, they're, they're probably out of it, but there's some big names there. You've got Kepka, of course, has been a force in the majors, not maybe as much recently. Justin Thomas is there as well. You've got Poulter. And is there, if I told you one of those guys at even par is going to make a charge at this, which, which guy would you pick? I would pick JT because he can be, a, he can, he can really get hot and be a front runner when he's playing well. Um, 
and get it rolling. Uh, so I could I could see that fact. You know, I, I, my column in today's post was on, was on his dad and and NJT mostly on his dad. But you know, one one of the things his dad mentioned to me, which I, I don't think made the columns in enough space, but you know, when he gets most nervous. Uh, I asked him if he gets nervous. He doesn't get, doesn't get nervous, but he says get most nervous when 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 Justin is around the cut line because he he feels like if he doesn't make the cut, he takes that opportunity away from you know to make a run on a weekend. And because because Justin is very capable of getting hot, throwing a bunch of birdies up there, you know. And he he referenced the Players Championship that Justin won in March. Uh, he made the cut on the line on the number and won the golf tournament. So um, I can see Justin getting hot. Um, and, and he would probably be the one guy there. Kepka's a weird deal. You know, I mean, I I felt like going into Sunday at Kiwa Island when he was right there with Phil. I didn't, you know, frankly, didn't think Phil was going to be able to keep it together in four straight rounds. And I thought I thought I was almost certain Kepka was just going to mow the mow the place down and and win going away at the PGA. Did not do it. Putted very poorly. Uh, never got used to the greens and when they were in his head. And similarly, I thought he was going to make a run yesterday, and he, you know never really got it going. So, you know, he, we kind of look at Kepka as a little bit of a robo, you know, player, so to speak, because he's kind of, you know, plays the tough guy thing, and, uh, you know, seemingly unaffected and all that kind of thing. But, you know, he has not really stepped up in those, in those, you know, the heat of the moments uh, at Kiwa and, uh, and so far this week, although he's, you know, to credit him, he's been, hungry, he's, he's, he's right there, but I don't know. I don't know if he's got a run in him today because I just haven't seen it in the last, you know, the last couple of big tournaments. Mark, we got about a minute left. Uh, Tiger Woods, of course, won eight times at Torrey Pines. It would have been a spectacle to see him compete this week. Obviously, that didn't happen. If you had to make an educated guess as to when he would return to competitive golf or if he's going to return to competitive golf, what guess would that be? Well, I do think I, I do feel like he's going to try to make a run at it because Tiger seems to thrive in these scenarios, albeit this is more serious than anything he's ever dealt with, but you know, the knee injuries, the Achilles, the back, you know, he, I mean, he loves to tell everybody about the, you know, the stress fracture that he won a Tory on in 2008, right? So I do think he's going to make a run at it. Um, I mean, he got hurt, obviously, or, you know, injured in February. It's hard for me to imagine that he would be, you know, have even have a chance to give it a go until next spring. Uh, I mean, I think that's what a lot of the doctors have said. Now, the one thing I will say, Ian, is I, I, I was speaking to a, a doctor, orthopedic surgeon friend of mine, recently and and his concern with tiger is not necessarily the golf but whether that leg can withstand walking 18 holes four days in a row just the walking element of it mm-hmm. so that that is actually an interesting dynamic that he brought up which we don't really think about we think about you know all the torque and everything you, you need to get with, with the golf swing but he was really more concerned about whether that leg would hold up and be strong enough you know, to, to walk 72 holes. So that'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. But I do think he's going to give it a go because Tiger seems to thrive on the comebacks, right? Yeah, no question, right? And, and being there in uh, 2019 at Augusta National is probably the best sporting event I've ever covered. So that was a hell of a thing. But anyway, Mark Canizara, read him uh, tonight, nypost.com, tomorrow in the New York Post. Does a, a terrific job. Thanks for your insight, Mark, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Good talking to you, teammate. Talk to you soon. I'll see you soon. Yeah. All right, Mark Canizaro from Torrey Pines. At what a shame! Tiger won eight times there in on the PGA Tour, and to not be there for a chance to get his sixteenth major. To, uh, well, it, it, listen, if he makes it back to the Masters next year, wow, what an event that would be!